No, 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 Mr. Van Deventer, enunciate. Oh, God, you twat. I love that man. I really did. He was, he, he was the one who told us that English is one of those strange languages that follows other languages down dark alleyways, then knocks them unconscious, then rifles through their pockets for any loose grammar. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of A Jew, a Christian, and an Atheist Walk Into a Bar. I am your one of your hosts, Austin Lunyon. And before we get started, I need to give a shout-out to my friend Andy of the band Big Useless Brain, which generously gave us our theme song, which is called Know It All. And if you would like to hear more of their music, you can visit their website at biguselessbrain.com. And I believe they are also on iTunes as well. So really want to thank them for giving us permission to use their song as our theme song because you would not believe how expensive it is to get a song that you can use for one of these podcasts. It is really an expense. So uh, also before we get started, any questions or comments about the show that you'd like to send to us or ask us, you can find us on Facebook at A Jew, A Christian, and Atheist Walk Into a Bar, also at JCA Walk Into a Bar. Both of those should pull us up on Facebook. And we also have a Twitter account. Imagine that. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at JCA Walk Into a Bar. And I think that about covers it. So, as I said before, my name is Austin Lunyon. I'm one of three of your hosts. I am joined here by my friends and colleagues, Robert Rusty Young and Erhard Van Diventer. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So, we're going to start with. Uh, oh, you two make up your minds now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll do it. Mm. Uh, Rusty Young, I'm a. PhD student, uh, which is a nice way of saying a tenured tutor. <laughs> or an indentured servant. <laughs> yeah, indentured servant obviously fits that very well. Uh, yes, uh, history is obviously uh, what I study and go by Rusty. And I'm at a university. Go ahead. Perfect. I'm Ahard Van Deventer, and um, South African, of course, living here in the great country of the United States. I'm a fellow PhD student with my friends here and interested in history and focusing predominantly on imperialism and colonialism. And as I said before, this is the third time I'm saying it, I'm Austin Lunyon, and I am a colleague of Erhard's and Rusty's, uh, and I am a adjunct at a university. And so just to give you all an idea of what this podcast is about. The three of us spent a lot of time together in our office, our individual offices uh, discussing just how various events going on uh, during the week. So whether it was politics, history, current events, movies, music, whatever you want to talk about, we just sat around and we talked about it all. 
and eventually we had students and other people say, you know, you should record these conversations because I've just like sitting here listening to y'all. And uh, this is the result of it, this podcast. So we're doing now in this podcast what we basically have done almost every week for the last two years, I guess, since we've really gotten to all know each other. And um, the name comes from the idea that the three names, the, the Jew, the Christian, and the atheist, represent each one of us. And obviously, we're not going to say which one of us is which. But the idea of this podcast is, is that the three of us who come from three different backgrounds, three different identities, can sit down and talk about these things, these oftentimes difficult and hard things, depending on what we're talking about, and yet come out of it on the other side as friends. And we can still have our own different opinions. Yes. And... We, I think the first time we all three went out to lunch one time, we had an undergraduate with us, if you recall. Uh, oh, yes, yes. It was Lammy. remember that. Yes, Lammy, yes. And we had a conversation about religion, and it was a Jew, a Christian, an atheist having a conversation about religion, and he was just amazed that we all three differed in our opinions about religion, yet were able to break bread and then leave that table as friends, and that just like blew his mind, because he says that's not supposed to... According to the outside narrative of the world, that's not supposed to happen um, in reality right now. So, um, no, you you're supposed to be mortal enemies. I kind of mm-hmm. think that was his his line. I mean, you're you're supposed to be mortal enemies because you have your own vastly different opinions. And like you said, I mean, it, it just absolutely astounded him. He was speaking with me for at least a week after about you know why how can you guys sit down and 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 do it his experience is you know once you actually have different opinions then lines are drawn in the sand and it just kind of sours the entire conversation his op- the observation he gave or his analysis if you will to what was going on uh gave me pause because it made it it kind of puts some reality to how polarized things are to be shocked that three people with different ideas, different backgrounds can sit and have an adult conversation that doesn't turn into violence or hurt feelings or anything could happen. It's almost like that generation expected it. Well, this is not supposed to happen. Mm. So. No, and, and and I think you bring up a very interesting point that you no, know, that is exactly the experience that, as Austin pointed out, the narrative is that you know there has to be this antagonism between people who believe different things. If you don't believe the exact same thing I do in the exact same manner that I do it, then you have to be my enemy and you have to be wrong. I think that is a complete you know fatalistic opinion oh, to very have much so. because this this goes into factionalism and and dare I say it tribalism amongst amongst people tribalism that's uh, that's probably an accurate definition of the direction we're going with everything because everything's become so polarized mm-hmm. it's almost an all in or if he doesn't agree like you were saying therefore you are my enemy well i mean even if you look at the idea of you know tribalism that's kind of humanity's oldest form of political organization of of tribes and chieftains i think it is actually an interesting point that we might be going back to a a a pre-state pre-democratic system where you you have your own little tribe of individuals who look the same, talk the same, walk the same, and then uh, think the same. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that the the class I took on the history of violence and honor in Europe was gone by the time you two came into the same program. Right? Yeah, it was. Yes, yeah, it was. We're all three from the same program, just for the record. So we we all that's how we all three know each other. Um, but in that class, one of the books assigned was called The Rule of the Clan, where the author talked about that there's a paradox here with um, the idea of the individual and the idea of the rule of the clan. And the, basically the author's whole thesis there was that the weaker the, the weaker the federal government becomes, the less they're able to protect the rights of the individual. And then people revert back to, their, to clan, the rule of the clan, their family ties, their tribal units and things like that. The strong, and so he says there's a paradox here that people think if you make a weaker federal government, he says, that you'll be more free. And he says, and while that may be true in some respects, if you weaken the federal government too much, a central government too much, then the individual cannot be, the rights of the individual cannot be protected against the rights of the clan or the rights of the tribe. And I was like, it's an interesting idea, but regardless of the federal government thing, his idea that if you don't have, if you aren't an individual, you revert back to the rule of the clan. That human beings, he basically made the statement in the beginning of the book that human beings' natural condition is to is one of tribal, tribalism, and that the last uh, thousand years of of Western history has been removing ourselves further away from the, our tribal beginning until we get down to the individual. So that that's. It was an interesting book. So go ahead. You want rest Oh, no. I just, uh, just touching on that real quick, it reminded me, squirrel moment, if you will, <laughs> but it reminded me of the conversation that me and you had, it's been a couple of years, where you brought up something real interesting. It hit home with me because you said that, uh, speaking of federal powers, et cetera, uh, you had said something about your dad had said at one time, it's not the federal government so much that will violate your civil rights. It's usually the local, at mm. the local level. Does that, could you expand on that? Well, sure. You mean in light of the, of the covid-19 situation or yeah we, yeah we hadn't dropped that word yet i was i, was, I know well we, all, we were doing so well no because yeah. it fit and it was actually a couple of years before this covid-19 mm. uh you mean the great plague the great plague yes. Mm. yes uh before this great plague uh you had brought that up and it totally it took fast forward two years and it was like a blueprint for what was going on mm. yeah so my father was a police officer here in the small town I'm actually living in right now. Uh, but he was a police officer, police officer here back in the 80s, um, late 70s to 80s, somewhere in that region, 80s, basically. And um, he basically, his understanding of the law was is that the federal government can make any law that it wants, but he really does believe in that idea that all government is local. Because... The federal government can make a law, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily enforced by the police uh, in a local town. And when and back in the day before body cameras, which this was, of course, um, the police officer standing by a car on the side of the road when he pulls you over decides what laws he wants to enforce, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how it went back then. And so, you know, 
my my dad would always lay down the law when it came to people driving drunk, for instance. But he was hesitant to ruin people's lives just because they wanted to smoke a joint. Because back then, mandatory minimum, you know, what was it, like 20 years? 20 years, yeah. 20 years for smoking a joint. And my dad, Holy and my dad goes, my dad said, I'm not ruining this guy's life for smoking a joint. Because he, because he eventually said, he says, because probably in 20 years it's going to be legal and this guy's still going to be rotting in jail. I'm like, my dad says some prophetic things sometimes, and, and I don't want to, I hesitate to call him, say that about him because it goes to his head. He's like, yeah, you're right, I'm a prophet. I mean, so it's... <laughs> How modest. Right? How modest. So, <clears throat> excuse me. He, 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 that's when he basically told me that, that it's all about on the local level, and on the local level, small cities tend to push the envelope to see how far they can take their power. The federal government does it sometimes, but the, as far as like affecting your everyday life and your the way you live, the way you work, the way you uh, drive around town, the way you shop, everything like that, he says the local cities that will that will basically chip away at those freedoms a lot of times. And that I think what you're getting at, Rusty, is that during this whole COVID nineteen thing, we saw that happen with all these stay at home orders. Because every single oh, city, yes. I mean, the, the federal government, and this was what I found interesting, is the federal government handed ga- handed down guidelines, right? They didn't say this is an order. They said this is what you should be doing in order to stop the spread of the virus. And that was left up. But again, it was guidelines, like the pirate code, right? Yes. And and um, that means that, you know, this is like the, the, the general thing that you should be doing and the... Cities, basically, they said if the states and cities can do whatever they want. So state government has a little, has more control over your life than the federal government because you live in a certain state. But then you come down to the county, the sheriffs, and then individual city ordinances. But each, each of these little cities around here had their stay-at-home orders, which was quite fascinating. Now, the, the city that, we live, that we're in now is a small town. I will give credit to this uh, small little city, this small little town. They didn't lose their minds. Uh, I could walk from my house to, there's a small liberal arts university here in this town. I could walk onto that campus just to get exercise, and a cop wouldn't stop me and ask me what I'm doing. And I walk right right beside the police station when I do that, right? And they had no problem with it. So I, I really am appreciative of how this small town handled the whole thing. But then you go to Burleson. And I used this in my class when I was talking about the First Amendment. You go to a, a city like Burl. I just mentioned Burleson, but I don't care. Um, because one of those cities, right? <clears throat> well, I didn't want to, excuse me. I didn't want to mention the city I live in, but I'm in that vicinity, right? We're in the, we're in the vicinity of the Metroplex. But um, they released their stay-at-home order. And in one of the things, it said, uh, there shall be no gatherings of any size, public or private. And that just astounded me. I'm like, how do you enforce that? Does that, I mean, how do you enforce um, a meeting that's done in private? So are you saying that the police now have probable cause to enter your home without a warrant because you have more than five people in your home or, or in your backyard? I mean, the, I mean, a warrant, they're not allowed to come on your property. I mean, they can say... They're allowed to come on your property if they have probable cause, like they hear someone screaming or hear a gunshot or something like that, right? But they can't search your home without a warrant. But they can come onto your property if they have probable cause. And so my whole thing was, 
does this mean now if like a neighbor sees his neighbor having a barbecue with some people out there and he calls the cops, does the cop have the right to use that as probable cause to go on someone's property and basically cite them for for um, breaking this this city ordinance, which was always going to be temporary? Well, cite them or arrest them or what? what is next? I mean, that's that. That's really the problem. I think you make a valid point that all government really is local because it goes to the rule of enforcement. You don't see federal troops enforcing laws in, in, in little towns. You see local enforcement doing local things. And you, you, you make a very interesting case where you talk about probable cause and how far these little towns can actually push their ability to infringe on your civil, lib- civil liberties. The case you brought up, you know, if, if, if you're having a get-together, a party of five people, or let's say your family, you have six members of your family living in, in a house with you and you're having a barbecue out on the porch, then this fictitious ordinance says that, well, yes, police do, do actually have probable cause that they can come in and, you know, break this up or fine you or arrest you, as I said earlier. Where where does this abuse actually end? Because this gives people license to do things that they normally wouldn't be able able to do. I don't know if we know where the abuse ends, but we know where it starts. And it starts when the people allow things like that to happen. Because when you think about that, Freedom of assembly, it's in the you know it's one of our basic rights. Freedom of religion, you go down the freedom of speech. It hits everything, mm-hmm. just almost like check the box. Sad, but anyway, before we get too deep into it, that really hit home with me when I see what's going on out there today with these uh, local ordinances. Laws, well, we call them laws. They're trying to enforce them. Uh, that hit home because it's local. It's not federal. The whole world's watching the federal government, but who's watching the local situation? And that's where the abuse, like you, Ruth. Yeah, I mean, so I have been looking, you know, for a full-time job in, at various other universities for since I graduated, right? And and it's difficult. It seems like you need to be an adjunct first and, you know, almost like an internship after you get out of medical school and then you can go work for a, a big hospital. So same thing for um, history professors, it would seem, which not a problem. I get it. They want to make sure you can actually teach and know what you're doing. That's fine. But when I was looking at these jobs, I was applying for jobs in Maine. Uh, I went. I actually interviewed for a job out in Northern California uh, in in the Napa Valley region. Um, gorgeous place, but um, untenable for a professor on a professor's salary to live there. But the whole point is I'm looking at other states and just, you know, got several interviews, but never really got hired. And um, my wife was kind of disappointed by that because she kind of wanted to get out and find a new place. You know, she's very adventurous. And I told her, I said, during this whole COVID thing, I'm actually really glad that we stayed in Texas because Texas didn't seem to lose its mind uh, like some other states did. And I, and, I, and I I say that, you know, lose its mind, meaning that they didn't, they didn't really freak out. They said, okay, we, we're going to handle this, we're going to try and handle this appropriate, as appropriately as you can handle a pandemic. And um, 
look at us. I mean, we we have more cases, I believe, than California, do we not? We have more cases than California, yet we're open for business and our economy is not tanking. California has less cases. Their economy is still pretty... They're starting to reopen very slowly, but they're doing insurmountable damage to their economy. And people say, well, you know, the economy... I remember um, one of our colleagues on Facebook posted things like, uh, you know, oh, you know, here you go. You're willing to die for that almighty economy. And I think, Erhard, we had several conversations where I said the thing was, people are saying to themselves, what's the point of surviving coronavirus if you're going to starve to death? Yeah, I actually heard that. They go, so I'm going to survive coronavirus to die because I'm destitute. When you were talking about the businesses going under... You brought up a. I got to touch on this. No, please. A, a good thing because when we were driving up this morning, yes. Uh, South African colleague, he goes, "It's not we the people; it's we the corporation." Mm. And is that's powerful? Because think about that. Walmart, big business, could stay wide open. It was the small businessman, the mom and papa, that suffered through this. Suddenly, if even if they sold the same exact items, they could have went to, I've uh, went to, could have gone to Walmart and bought there to resell, but they wouldn't be allowed to open. Yet you had your Walmart's, a uh, lot of your big corporations, uh, Home Depot. Try to get in Home Depot during all of this. It was a zoo in there. Uh, Lowe's, Walmart, they all got to stay in stay in business and actually enjoyed the benefits financially from people that might have gone to a mom and papa. So it basically it was uh, to me it was like robbing the small businessman. I mean, this is a point that I was making early on in this whole COVID crisis, and people were very upset with me when I said, well, <laughs> let's let's say, you know, there's a mass extinction and there's a cart being drawn in front of my house with someone ringing, ringing a bell, shouting, bring out your dead, you know. And even if, if that happens, you know, we have a great tragedy of a great many lives lost, but the true damage will be an economic one. And now we have it. We see it here within the United States, and particularly in my home country of South Africa, where people are surviving the COVID crisis, but they are now destitute. They are penniless, they're jobless, and they will starve to death. Now, Africa, of course, as most of you know, starvation has always been present within the African continent, and, and even within South Africa, my own country that I love dearly. But this economic collapse because of the the craziness and the lockdowns because of COVID-19 will simply exacerbate those things to the 10th degree. And you, well, Robert and I talked about this this morning while we're driving up. Within America, you see all of the small businesses closed. You see the hairdresser are closed. And if everyone's been following the news, you know, stories about hairdressers here in Texas being fined and sent to jail. But, you know, giant corporations like Walmart, they're open, they're doing business. And granted, I, 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 I concede the point that, you know, Walmart is a grocery store. People need to go buy groceries. But for the same point, I have to ask the question, why am I not allowed to go to my little mom and pop store, which I enjoy, where I can go buy my groceries there? Why do they have to be closed? Now, now this is interesting, though, because, again, this goes back to local government as well. 
because in the county we're in, if you looked at the county declaration of um, emergency, it gave a list of the quote-unquote essential businesses. And if you look at that list, it's basically everything that's not a gym, a theater, or a salon, or a massage parlor. Because uh, there's a RV sales place down here off of the interstate, and there's several in town here as well. They were allowed to stay open. RV sales were considered an essential business. Now, these are not owned by corporations. These are owned by private citizens. The car dealerships in this county, I believe, also... St- I know they stayed open because my father-in-law bought a truck. <laughs> so um, so it, it actually kind of... It was from city to city, from county to county. But I agree overall. The big corporations had the... Had the um, you know their customers handed to them on a silver platter overall nationally. But just talking about locally here, I there were a lot of businesses that were still allowed to be open because this county realized that most of their there's yeah, there's like a um there's a Walmart over here. There's two Walmarts in the vicinity, but that's about the only big "Quote unquote big store." There is there's oh well there's H E B and Kroger there in Burleson, but um, over here in this other city, you know, there's there's only a Walmart. There's a small Kroger, but they have a lot of mom and pop stores there. Right. And the city and the county did not want to come down really hard on them, and so they allowed them to stay open. Just take yeah, precautions. but a lot of these bigger cities, it became that local government could decide who succeeded and who failed financially during this. It reminded me of Rahm Emanuel's famous quote, never waste a good crisis, because that's one of the problems with this whole thing is turned into this overarching big political football that has nothing, has what's good for the country, what's good for the individual. That's been thrown out the window to, oh, what's good for the party. Well, I think it's more a case of what's good for your pocketbook. I mean, here in a a small town, where does the majority of tax revenue come from? Well, it comes from local people. In in large cities, of course, the majority of income to local governments don't necessarily come from the people there. They come from these large businesses that pay a lot of taxes. So, of course, I mean, local government would like to keep them open and keep them solvent so they can get their money out of it. While smaller businesses, you know, that don't contribute such a large quantity of revenue, well, they they can be sacrificed in 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 this crisis. You know, it's kind of a, a callous analogy, but I think it's quite it's quite accurate. Because what they're going to do when this is over, they're going to raise taxes to make up for any lost revenue, and which is going to hit the small business even harder. Well, I mean. The same thing. If they don't go bankrupt because of this crisis, they might very well go bankrupt because of excessive taxation. So you'll see large swaths of the city center empty, uh, vacant places. And that that's kind of the perfect opportunity for these larger corporations to go buy, it up, buy up that valuable property and go build more chain, more chain stores. So you could almost say this is simply a broom being used to sweep away the mom and pop stores kind of make make way for more more Starbucks shops on on every corner. Well, and that just digging on that just a little bit, we went down the rabbit hole on this. I want to continue digging. One for a penny and for a pound. <laughs> yeah, that's no, true. No, but it's one of the things that bugs me about this whole well, 
they say it's based on science. What science? I can't get two doctors to agree on the whole COVID situation. Uh, I just want to touch on one thing. This Fauci, am I saying it correctly? Yes, Fauci, yes, Dr. Fauci. Go back and look. He first said, hey, these masks are useless. They will not stop the spread of... And then it turned into, well, you must wear masks. And it's almost like he... Some reason he's the recognized expert, one person, at least in this country. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You, you, no, Robert, you, you. And then suddenly he's wearing a mask, and he's saying you must wear a mask, and it, it's so, it, it's almost political theater when you look on TV now. And the mask is, I care. I must wear a mask to show that I care. Oh, well, isn't it Nancy Pelosi that uh? Um, oh God! Her, she um, what you call it? She designer. Mask, yeah, well, no, she her um, masks match her outfit. Yeah, her mask. She reminds she, me um, of the queen in her purses. Yeah, exactly. Her masks. She her masks match whatever outfit she's wearing at, during the day, and it's like, wow, right? It's mm-hmm. Kind of. It, it's all along the same lines as people are lining up at food banks in California, and she opens up her freezer to show you all her gourmet ice cream, um, and. That's kind of what blows my mind about this whole thing is people can do like what she's doing and they won't acknowledge, well, she's looking out for us. Really? <laughs> By eating ice cream on live television? Yeah. Well, I don't know. She was she was supporting a mom and pop store by buying ice cream from them. No, from, that wasn't a them. mom and pop. Go look. That was... Highly imported, very expensive. <laughs> well, it might it have been like a, the gelato that Leslie likes to get every now and then. Well, mm-hmm. it might be a mom and pop shop in Nice, France. I mean, we don't <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so very that's, true. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, and, and you know, I I, well, I don't understand that because if you look at everything that she has allowed past the House of Representatives, none of it has been really to help the American people. I mean, the the stimulus bill they passed that was what. Four trillion dollars, something like that. Four trillion dollars, something like that. And she passed it. She's the Speaker of the House. She could have stopped it. But where did all that money go? It went to the top echelon yep. of, of the economy, the corporations. And 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 how much money did the American people get? Twenty four hundred dollars per family. It's like with four trillion dollars, you could have done. You could have forgiven every student loan out there, which, by the way, would have. And what they they just deferred our student loans, and I, I you know, I'm willing to pay my student loans because I got an education out of it, and I value that, and I'm willing to pay that money back. But when you have these people that are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt from student loan, and it's already a burden on our economy, if you're just going to start printing off money, may as well throw it over there where it will do some good instead of transferring all that wealth to the top echelon. And I'm starting 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 to sound a little bit like Jimmy Dore, I guess, but how Marxist of you. How Marxist of me. Yes, huh? yes, yes. Um, yeah, but that on this student loan thing, that's a to me that's a slippery slope. I know, everything's it's, a slippery slope. It, but especially <laughs> in that and I'm only saying that because uh a lot of these student debts are hundred like you were said they're hundreds of thousands of dollars i don't think i should be paying for a bad decision made by somebody else mm. does that and i that sounds no, no, I, I crash see, I, or, I, I see what you're saying somebody goes to um who was it 
Dave Ramsey, the financial money guru. Yeah, I know what um, you're talking about. He used to say, you know, why are you going to college and getting a degree in the history of German polka music or something like that? Mm-hmm. And that, and that's a fair, you know, you go, you went and got a high price degree from an Ivy League college without a without a scholarship or something like that, and now you're a hundred thousand dollars in debt because you wanted to go to this prestigious college. I mean, SMU here is eighty thousand dollars a year, right? And the question is, does the, does the name SMU and your degree give you any better of a chance to get a job than in, in the liberal arts sector than some other university? And that name is starting to go down because SMU is not Ivy League. But I mean, I, I think you're both talking about a fundamental problem that I, I can talk to because I've, this is something that I've noticed. I mean, it seems to me that people are studying for, well, studying degrees with money they don't have for jobs that don't exist. Um, ah, and, and I like and, that. And, and, Write well, that down, somebody. I mean, this is well. I mean, not to be you know jovial about it, but this, this is kind of the problem. I mean, ever since coming here, I, I've heard this. Oh, if you want to succeed, you have to have a college degree. That is the narrative that I was taught throughout my entire student career here within the United States, and I don't exactly think that, that is true. Um, if you look at all of the other services and the other sectors within the economy, people are needed there. And you can be quite successful. Trade schools. Trade schools. I mean, you can you can you can live quite quite comfortably living off of a trade or a skill. I mean, not everybody has to have a degree to succeed. Now, granted, if you look at, you know, blue collar work, there is this unspoken rule that if you apply, you better have a degree. And it doesn't matter what degree it is. You simply have to have your union card from the university that you picked to say, well, I'm part of the club. Because this narrative is sold to young people that, oh, that you have to go to college to succeed at life. And this brings up another point. I absolutely despise it when freshmen come into the university and they're harassed. What's your five-year plan? What's your five-year plan? Most of these people don't even have a plan for tomorrow morning much less five years down down the road, mm, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. People coming out of high school don't really consider and think about their long-term plans, their jobs, and stuff like that. I mean, I think, you know, college is an experience that they should go to, but there's so much pressure being placed on people to get a degree because a degree will make you successful, which I think is a, a false narrative. More time should be spent on having people actually think, you know, what would you like to do? What can you do? And what makes a decent living for you? And that does not necessarily mean you actually have to have a degree. And if you're going to college, developing the skills that make you functional in a job or make you adaptable in a job, you know, it's it, getting the degree so you can get the job... It, my, my father had a communications degree, and with a communications degree, he was a police officer, and then he became a computer IT guy. And he had to teach himself about computers. He didn't get a degree in computers. Communications back in the 70s, he graduated 79 from college, and communications back then was speech, radio, and broadcast. Mm-hmm. There was no computers involved. So every job he worked, including police officer and computers, his degree did not prepare him for, basically. But what college did prepare him for was to be adaptable, and it gave him. As my, my, you said you called the degree the union card, and that's yep. a very, I think, a very apt, a very apt thing. My father always said that the reason that employers wanted that bachelor's degree, at least a bachelor's, was because it showed them one that you could stick with something, and and complete something, 
very, you know, for a four-year task, you have to have drive to finish that. I mean, in all reality, but also it shows an employer that you're teachable, that you can learn different things. And so those are the two big things he said. But I think all of that gets summed up in the union card is that, you know, I, I was able to accomplish this and now... Uh, a certain door is opened. And, and, and so that was my father's opinion. And I think Erhard's is more apt for our present time because it's like, I want to go from this level here up to the next level of jobs that pays better, has better benefits, things like that. And that door will not open unless you flash that piece of paper right here. Mm-hmm. But also, I think there's a problem in that, you know, the services in the trade schools are looked down on. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not real jobs. You know, that that's kind of a term that I've heard being thrown around here that, oh, you're, let's say you're working for, you know, a, a car servicing company. Oh, but that's not a real job. And, you know, I, I fail to see how that's a legitimate opinion. I think it is an actual real job that people, well, need. Society needs people to fill those those roles. And society shouldn't look down on those people. They're all part of a larger structure that helps everybody's life go by. It's part of the larger problem of taking things for granted, I think. You know, we take the sewer system for granted. We take the electrical grid for... Think about the fact that we turn on the lights here every day. We're using electricity now to, to you know, do this show. And we don't think about the people that work in the electric plants or work on the grid to make sure it stays up and running. The, the, the electrical grid in this country is so impressive. Now, it is outdated in many ways, but it's so impressive if you really look at how the whole thing's strung together and it actually works. And, you're kind of, and nobody really thinks about the fact that somebody has to get up at 6 a.m. every day and go out and work on that line and possibly with the chance of getting electrocuted at the same time, Right. Nobody thinks about the sewer worker that makes sure that the sewer doesn't get backed up in your bathtub or your or your toilet here, and and those are and I have a deep appreciation for these people. I guess maybe because you know I remodeled the, this house, and I replaced that toilet, and this is where I got an idea of how much money I could make. I found out a, a, a anywhere from a hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars a plumber would charge me to put in that new toilet, and I was able to do it in thirty minutes, and I'm kind of like. $200 for a 30-minute job? And I know plumbers around here that make well over $100,000. And I know and um, at this small liberal arts university here in my hometown, um, they start professors off at about 48000 So a professor with a PhD starts at $48,000, yet a plumber who went to a trade school, and I'm not saying anything, it's, I, it, I find it admirable, and this is why I'm saying more to Earhart's point, that that people devalue trade schools when they shouldn't. I know of plumbers in this area that make over, well over $100,000 a year. Masters, master plumbers that do all the plumbing for the big sky, um, skyscrapers, high rises, they make bank. It's, it's just, so you can't just, the idea that you need a college degree to be more economically viable and make more money is just a farce. That's how we got people to sign up for more classes. You... No, you're smiling over there, so I'm wondering. No, it just, uh, it, it reminds uh, a friend of mine, he's a welder. Mm. And I promise you, he's already made more money than I will ever make because of my academic credentials. 
Yeah, my cousin is a welder. He couldn't. My cousin was one of those who couldn't really figure out what he wanted to do in life for a while, and then he did welding, and he just like it. He took to it. He was top of his class. Yep. I mean, he is an excellent welder. He puts pictures on Facebook all the time of his welding jobs. It's it's beautiful because when he welds it, there's like an iridescent sheen left on his welding marks. That is just it's like art almost. And uh, I knew I knew he was making bank when last Thanksgiving he drove drove up in a new um, a new pickup truck. I mean, it was I like that truck, and uh, I knew that he. He didn't, I don't think he paid cash outright for it, but that's, the down payment was a lot more than what the original down payment was for, right? So he, um, he's doing very well, and I know he's making far more money than I am, and I have the degree on the wall. <laughs> so, and, and, and you know, I'm happy for him because it took him a while, and he struggled to find oh, yeah. that. We'll right? see. Example uh, is a buddy of mine. Uh, we got together recently, and I hadn't seen him in several years. We're having a good time talking, and I still remembered, remember his son, Wyatt, when he was little. Well, now he's a welder, and I believe last year or the year before, he made 300000 300, oh, as wow. a welder. He's like, he's good, obviously. Well, now he but, found and out. And he, his only education after high school was he went to a welding trade school. Mm. Well, now that was it. Now I actually find out who the real essential workers are. Mm. Yeah. My great uncle was a bridge welder, a union bridge welder for a, for a long time. He Did he a, have his union card? Yes. Um, yes, you might say. Uh, he owned a sail a sail yacht, sailing yacht, and he sailed to the Azores and back. And I was like, how does how does Uncle Charles have all this money? Like I thought our family was middle class to poor. <laughs> and um and that's when my dad told me, Oh no, he's a welder. And uh, I mean yep. he would he was one of those that would go up on the high bridges and weld on those bridges and they got paid bank. Oh yeah. And I mean he's of the and you know, he's my great uncle, so he's in his eighties now. So he was of that old guard when they got paid really good money. But I think also... They, get, they still get paid good money now, as we've seen. I mean, but. they do, but I don't think these are a bit more the exception than the general rule. I think years, years back, it was the general rule where there was a lot of construction, a lot of maintenance being done on the transportation system, which is you know doesn't exactly have a good grade to it currently, that you actually had these massive projects where people would be gain, gainfully employed. Um, go back to your argument about stimulus and money being spent during the crisis, I would like to see money being spent on the national road system, or at least the, to that. the bridges yes. that, that that have collapsed or do for a collapse. Well, well you being... drove down here. You saw how many potholes were around this area. <laughs> yes, yes, and how I mean, how, how shoddy the bridges are. And kind of, can, can't we spend at least a little bit of money to fix those, those things, for instance? That bridge down there across I-35 that y'all, when y'all exited off to come onto yep. over here, that bridge is older than I am. It was built back in the, um, the 70s, I think. And the traffic that goes over it every morning, like if we, when Leslie and I commute, when we were commuting, the traffic that goes over, I mean, you have sometimes four semi trucks, one way, two coming the other. So a total of like six semi trucks just sitting on that bridge. And that bridge is, uh, is well over 50 years old. And you know that those bridges, it's only a two lane bridge going over the interstate for a small farm to market road. That's all it ever is meant to be. 
And now, and that thing, every time I go over it, I'm like, please let me get over this until, uh, please let it collapse after I'm over it because I'm just terrified that that thing is one day just going to fall down on the interstate. When was the last time we had talk about doing infrastructure? In the government? Yeah. Not within my living memory. Yes. I mean, that's... Remember the Obama administration? Pre, Pre-Reagan. We have shovel-ready jobs. They talked about... Yeah, but it never happened, did it? Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. All that money was pulled, but it... it I mean, as... Where did it go? I mean, if, if I remember anything from American history that I've been studying, that's pre-Reagan era, when you actually had large mm-hmm. projects of national in, in infrastructure, construction, maintenance... You know, I know the, the the Eisenhower administration did a lot of work work, work oh, with Eisenhower that. Oh, Eisenhower laid out the highway interstates. Yeah, they yeah. they they started the whole the whole system. But you're right. I mean, there's at least been let's say seventy. But that was 1950s. Years yeah, that anything's really been done with infrastructure, and it's overdue. <laughs> oh man, yeah, and and if I was if you know if I was the president of the United States, I'd be encouraging students. You want to go to college? Fine. But do me a favor, start going into the civil engineering sector because we're going to have to overhaul the entire infrastructure of this nation within the next probably 20 years. Well, yep. I mean, there's there's an, another solution to that as well. It's um, based on the idea of the GI Bill. I mean, GI Bill is a perfect example. You 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 help serve, serve the state, serve your country, and then you get rewarded for it by being able to go to college or study something, an additional skill. And I think there's enough room room for, for that, that people are going to be employed in large national projects and mm. either get paid for it, or you can have a, a dual system where you're paid, but also some of your tuitions for a university is kind of are kind of deferred, so you can develop yeah. your skill set further. Uh, kind of like when you when you do the military, it's like you enter into a contractual agreement with the government, you know, we'll pay for your schooling in, civ- in civil engineering and you serve us for four or five years as a civil engineer and in the employee of the state. Yeah. You're, you know, you'll still get a paycheck basically, but it won't be as high because we're, we paid for your school bill. So, and that's the whole idea of investing in the future of the country is investing in the education of students. And I think that there should be a lot more investment, as you said, your your problem with giving free tuition was that, well, I mean, we already take enough things for granted. If you start giving people free tuition, just, you know, oh, you're an American citizen, so you have the right to free education all the way through college. At, at some point, you have to learn that there is there is an exchange here. And originally, when universities were put in place, you know, you had Carnegie and Rockefeller that basically said they were part of that progressive movement, which was oh, the yes. idea that we're going to give money, huge endowments to these universities so that um, students don't have to worry about working or do tuition. They can just get their degree. And the idea was is that we're investing in the future of our society. Blood money. Every nickel. Uh, one thing, and, and I listened to Well, two... in, in Carnegie and Rockefeller's case, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things on on that right there is I listened to it, and a guy had a legitimate point on the wiping away student debt. He goes, I paid for my daughter's education. We saved, we scraped, we made it happen. So where is my reimbursement? Because somebody didn't do the same thing. Does that make sense? The way oh, kind of like a retroactive... 
Yeah, uh, that that payment. was, and he was making a bigger point. He goes, no, we made sacrifice, or the student who makes the sacrifices, i.e., you talked about the GI Bill. The student went and served three years, four years, whatever, mm-hmm. and he's got that. He made a sacrifice for that. So somebody that kind of goes to that entitlement thing, which we're... I mean, we we, we were talking about that that last week about this this idea of it's my right i have a i have a right uh, yeah. to these things i'm 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 entitled or go i need these things these things must be given to me and there's no idea of well you have to sacrifice and do things in in exchange i mean the whole issue of student debt i mean there's a very large economic argument to be made yes if we got 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 rid of the debt that would be good for the economy and many economists argue well we get rid of the debt that's bad for the economy it's the same point you you brought up uh, two doctors can can agree exactly on what what is the right the, the right thing to do but i think at least if something was to be done about the student debt and there is some some forgiveness program it shouldn't be for free it shouldn't be that well you studied and now you'll will will cancel your your debt. See, no, you, you have to do something to kind of get get this this forgiveness granted to you because the example you bring up people who do well what's called the responsible thing of saving up money, you know, scraping things together. I think that they have a legitimate point. You know, we worked hard for these things. Where's our kickback or our you know yeah well i'm I'm hesitant to say handout because it isn't exactly a handout and i think the point he was making in that discussion was he was against it not that he was asking for his back reimbursement he was simply saying he was against it because the real world's a real world mm-hmm. people make decisions every day some good some bad and it's uh, another slippery slope here. But to me, it's almost a Marxist argument. Well, it's for the greater good. Who's greater good is always my my, yeah. my, my question yeah. that I have to ask. You know? Yeah. That, and that's, that's kind of my... Uh, to me, and you, you two would probably understand this better than me, I'm sure... But that gives it, – it's almost like we've been supplanted constantly with the haves and the have-nots. Well, sometimes these have-nots are based on decision, life decisions they made, and it's not as black and white as it's portrayed. Does that make sense? Oh, no, I, no, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean – And I hope I'm not offending no, anybody, no. but I just – No, no. I mean – when I I went to there's a there's a private school here in this town as well that is actually in in the same in the same umbrella as the university here in this small town, and uh, it was a private uh, private high school, and my mom wanted me to go to that school. She thought it was very important I go there uh, go to that school, and she couldn't afford it, really not at that time. My my parents got divorced when I was a senior. In, in high school, so there was some financial issues with the family and everything else like that. But um, for all four years of my high school education, my mom mowed the lawn of that school to pay for my tuition. And if you were to drive by, it's not a small lawn. It's a field, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a field. She should have had a, a big zero-turn mower. She had a, 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 
oh, I can't remember what brand it was. It was it was a red lawnmower, and she it, it had like a the a cut a, not even a really big cutting deck. She would start every Friday morning at about seven uh, seven thirty in the morning, seven or thirty or eight o'clock in the morning, and she would mow, and she would be done by about noon, so for four hours basically. And it was, I mean, I remember I would be inside the class and I could hear her making those passes outside the window. And, and she tears up every time I, I mention this in her presence because um, she, I guess she maybe thought I didn't realize what f- type of sacrifice she was making to send me to a, a higher, what she considered a better education. And it's like, well, you, and it's like, of course I know. You, I was literally sitting in math class and I hear, <laughs> and then the weed whacker later on. And everybody knew it was my mom. And they said, oh, there goes your mom, man. It was a small you know, mm-hmm. private school. There's only 28 people in my class. I mean, so it's, you know, um, but it was, that is seared into my brain, the sacrifice she made so I could go to school there. When I got to college, she couldn't pay for all of it. And that's where I actually took out student loans. But when I left my undergraduate degree, I only had $16,000 of debt, which is the national average right now, I think is about 49,000, give or yeah. take, or 40,000. 40, 40, 40 something. For your undergraduate and so, I mean, I am like less than half of what the national average was. So I'm grateful for that. Beca- and that's because my mom, you know, gave up stuff that she really wanted at the time to pay for my tuition. Because she told me, I'll get you through four years of college the best I can. But after that, it's up to you. And then mm-hmm. so the so the PhD was my territory. And I had to figure out how to pay for that. And fortunately, you know, fully funded program. Wonderful. So... Um, you know, that, that was a boon to me and, and I didn't have to take out any student loans for my graduate degree, which was really nice. And, and I, and I'm really thankful the government gave me money, right? Um, there, so, so well, there's a, people, if, if, pe- there was an endowment from people and then, uh, I was given money and grants to help with, with student educate with my, with my needs for education and things like that. The government did give me money. It wasn't free. No, but, but you know. that's why there's so many, there's so much stuff out where there's a will, there is a way. Mm. If you want, if you're willing to make the sacrifices, there is a way that you can get an education in the United States where there's a will, there's a way. And and I'm just going to put, because when you say that, if you're willing to make the sacrifices, there are some who would say, oh, so we're expected to sacrifice ourselves on the altar Right, mm-hmm. they'll say things like that, and they said it during the COVID thing. Right, mm-hmm. let's open up the economy. Oh, so we're expected to sacrifice our grandparents and sacrifice ourselves, oh. let that blood flow to save the economy. Well, I mean, and, and, but the thing that is, was a crappy political argument. I, I know, but it's interesting because the idea of sacrificing of sacrificing for the greater good of the nation was something that people didn't think twice about a few generations ago. Um, you know, the idea of, the idea of rationing gasoline, going without sugar and coffee during the war, because you're sacrificing for the war effort, right? And people say, well, that's different because you're, you know, you're fighting a war against the Nazis. So it's, it's that, you know, that's a different type of sacrifice. It's like, was it really? Because it, what do you think would happen now if the government came out and said that there's a major national crisis and we need you to stop buying coffee products. Hmm. That would hurt. 
<laughs> the people would be losing their I mean well look how look I mean look at this now and and it's so the idea the idea of of sacrificing for education I find that very interesting because or or what no not not even sacrificing education what you said if you're willing to sacrifice you can you can do things that you never thought possible mm-hmm. because you're willing to give up something it's it's about willing to give up the the what's it called instant gratification yeah you 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 uh, you, you you kind of give up that that idea of you know your your luxury your your gratification your gratification really where you kind of have have this idea of well I have to work to get something mm-hmm. it's not I just get things and I get things immediately I mean that's that that's a I think the PhD has taught us that at least I mean I Seven years, seven a... long years. <laughs> yes, I can. I can kind of hear, hear hear it in 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 the background. No, but it it is true that if you if you work and you're dedicated to things, and as Robert pointed out, if there's a will, there 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 is a way. You can definitely work up to to these things. I mean, I think a major problem with with the the debt crisis is that it is almost a rigged system. Where you 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 accumulate debt, but there's always things added on on mm-hmm. onto this debt. No one is quite ever capable of getting out of it. There's always something else, something new. I mean, not not that I'm a conspiracy theorist, mm-hmm. but aliens did build the pyramids. Um, <laughs> of course, of course they did. Of course they did. Yes, we 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 the historians. Ancient people couldn't have been. Smart yes, to no, do that, no. Right? no. It's it's not as if we actually dug up their tombs with their tools that they actually built the pyramids. Of course not. But I definitely think that there is something, and this kind of deals with the issue of um, we 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 the corporations. There's always something else that we can milk out out of the public, and I think student student debt is, is chief chief amongst them. And not to belittle the issue of student debt, debt, I think it's it's a very important issue. But how it's handled is really the big the big solution here. And yeah, so. With student debt, yes, there are some things that that need to be changed. Like, for instance, before I refinanced my student loan, in the seven years I was in graduate school, they deferred the loan, and in seven years it went from sixteen thousand to twenty five thousand or something like that with interest, with mm-hmm. the interest being built up and added to the principal. So the interest was added in, even though I was I was going to school for a professional degree. The interest rates on those loans mostly was 6.8%, and they weren't fixed. The Congress could change it whenever they wanted. So I refinanced so I could get a fixed interest rate and a lower monthly payment. But the the issue is, if I stayed on their payment plan, I would pay $10,000 of interest. So obviously my plan is to pay it off early, just keep throwing money at it. Now, here's the issue. This the guy I mentioned, Dave Ramsey, I grew up listening to him on the radio, um... And I went through uh, Financial Peace University, which he promotes, and um, you know, not an ad for him, but he really is good at helping people getting out of debt. And one of the biggest things was priorities. Mm-hmm. And people say, "Oh, well, it's just so unfair that I have to that you know they're they're, they're just really um, this debt is just such a burden, right?" And and his whole thing was your priorities should be thusly. First of all, your rent or house payment, keep your family in a home, right? The utilities, keep the electricity and water on, food. 
Actually, food came before utilities, I think, because it's important to keep your family fed. You can go without power maybe for a little bit. That was his whole point. If you're if you're really that bad off, basically. But he says you need to get your priorities in line. When you're trying to pay off a fifty thousand dollar debt of student loans, and we haven't even touched credit card debt. He 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 had a talk show on and people would call in for he was like a guru. They'd call in with debt problems and he'd help solve them. Some of these people had like eighty thousand dollars in credit card debt. And sixty credit cards because you're paying off one. Yeah, credit yeah, exactly. Card with a different Peter, credit yeah, card. Yeah, yes. yeah. The interest, uh, the twelve months of free interest is about ready to end on this credit card, so I need to apply for another one so I can get another twelve months of free interest and transfer it over. Yes. And then it adds on three hundred dollars for the transfer fee, but the that yeah, lots of people doing that kind of thing. Um, and his whole thing was you need to get your priorities straight because he said, what, "What's your daily thing here?" And he found out that a lot of these people had cars they couldn't afford, like a. $500 car payment because they had an $80,000 Mercedes. And he's like, and he's like, you have how many cars? Like one guy called in, he was making like $2,000 a month worth of car payments. And he's like, you're car poor, man. He says, he says, are you the only one in your family that has a job? And that, it, that was true. He was the only one in his family that has a job. He goes, then you don't need more than one car. <laughs> so at this point, right? Um, he, the biggest thing, though, that he was finding was with a lot of people was the the TV packages, mm. your satellite TV <laughs> packages, your cable TV packages, your internet packages, um, the entertainment packages. And he was basically saying, in order for you to get out of debt, you need to make some sacrifices. There's that word again, right? Mm. And he says, and human beings need to to relearn the ancient word, the old word, the word of our ancestors, the ancient one, no. Mm-hmm. And so that was, uh, and so you can tell I grew up listening to him for 10 years because my boss used to play him on the radio all the yeah. time. And, and I appreciate it because that kind of changed my mind and how I look at debt. So I if, don't own any credit cards because so, of that. So, I mean, so if I don't want to pay taxes, I can say no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, that, hey. that's. Earhart is not an official tax representative. Please do not take his comments or opinions as an official tax representative. <laughs> yes, just a just a little little short short, short disclaimer there, but it kind this of jumps quickly becoming a tea party. Well, I mean, <laughs> that that I, I would rather leave that to Boston, you know. But um, if, if 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 we do have to sacrifice on the great altar of the American state, you know, coffee people will probably go back back to tea. We British won finally. Um, <laughs> no, but it 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 is kind of interesting that people bring bring up the, the 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 ideas, and I think it's always so very important to recognize that there are actual physical constraints that people have to deal with when they're looking at you know debt sacrificing things. I mean that that that's not something that we can take we can take take for granted. It does go back to this idea of willingness to sacrifice, but also a willingness to think critically about things. Of what do you actually need and what do you actually want. I mean, I was shocked to find out that, you know, if you didn't have cable television in this country, you were considered poor. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have dear, dear friends of mine from South Africa who lives in who live in homes and they have running water, but they have intermittent electricity. So they use gas and they use oil lamps to kind of light light their home. So the, the, I think there, there's a little bit of a false false equivalency when you're arguing about what people actually need to survive, but what people want when they're looking at, at survival. The same two different animals. Yes, they're completely two two different animals. I mean, I agree with the idea. If you if you're the only person working, then you know you're the only person who need who needs a car. But what about your wife mm. or 
someone else within the family who needs a vehicle to move around to go mm. buy groceries, stuff like that. What if your car breaks? You in, know, in, in con- you, you need a backup. You know, yeah. In context, when he said you're the only one that needs a car, that family was like two weeks away from losing the house. Yeah, and he was basically saying that if, unless your wife, you know. Unless she has needs this car for a job or something, which she wasn't intending, because she had she was taking care of the kids. They had like four kids. Yeah, he said you don't need but one car and choose the one that's already almost paid for, if not paid for, and get rid of all the others. And because he was basically saying you don't have, you know, yeah, if you can, if you could swing it, sure, you have two cars because your wife needs to go get groceries or whatever she needs to do. She needs to run errands for the household, whatever. But at this point, when you're two weeks away from losing the house. He said, chop it, cut. I mean, it's like you get, um, I was been watching these master classes and Werner Herzog, uh, the German film mm. director. I love him. He was talking about when he was on set one day, they were in the Amazon jungle fil- filming um, Aguirre, the Wrath of God. No. About the Spanish conquest of the Amazon region. And uh, one of the guys that was clearing brush for him, or actually it may have been um, Fitzcarraldo. Um, one of those, they were clearing brush in the Amazon jungle. And this guy was a native mm-hmm. of the region. And he uh, was cutting down a tree. And it was, I forgot what the name of the snake was, but it's one of the most deadliest snakes in South America. Mm. Bit him on the foot. And it's one of those snakes that it, the venom kills you in 10 minutes. Yeah. And the guy looked down at his foot and he knew exactly what kind of snake it was because he saw it go away. And Werner Herzog said that the guy started up his chainsaw and cut off his own foot because he knew if he didn't cut off his foot, <laughs> he was going to die. And I'm like, my mouth just dropped open when he told that story. And it's like, and now that's an extreme example, right? But if you know that you're basically going to, you have to do some hard things. That's that's like an extreme, extreme example, yes. right? Um, of cutting off the foot to save the body, yeah, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, that was that was Ramsey's whole point was, you know, you got five cars, man. So we can cut off grandpa and grandma. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Talking about the rabbit hole. Yes. No, mm-hmm. you're kind of I getting... should do an Alice in Wonderland theme in this studio so that we can kind of, we're always going down the rabbit hole. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, that's uh, what rabbit holes are for. I mean, this is what, oh, yeah. what the show is about. We, we, we intend to go down that, the rabbit hole. But here's where... one for you. Grandma and grandpa. Okay. I have a 90 year old grandmother and I love bringing my Mima into this because when this whole thing started... And people were saying, oh, don't let your... We're telling her, you can't go outside the house and things like that. Her response was, I am 90 years old. I lived through the Great Depression. I lived through the Dust Bowl. I lived through World War II. I lived through the Cold War. She said, I have had a good life. If I get it, I'm I'm not going to live... In, this is what she said. I'm not going to live in fear. She said, if I get it, I've had a good life and it's my time to go. And now some people say, well, that's callous because yeah, you know, you're know you're ready to go, but some people aren't ready to go. But I said... But she's the demographic that you're talking about. I that, mean, that's in danger that's, here. That that's just a false equivalency. I mean, mm-hmm. someone who doesn't want to go is driving down the highway, and a drunk driver drives right into them, and then mm-hmm. they die. They weren't ready to go being killed by a drunk driver, you know. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I don't Which think. Which is it, a higher percentage of happening, probably, yeah, than probably dying of COVID. Dying I of COVID. Add. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of people. I mean, I, I'd have to look at the statistic, but. I bet you. I bet you the number of people that die on the roadways each year far outnumbers. Because have we reached a hundred thousand in COVID yet? 
I think we have. Yes. However, something to keep in mind with this whole COVID thing and these numbers. Sorry to are, detract us. Here we no, are. No, 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 no. But the, this is important. Those numbers are questionable as stuff keeps coming out. Uh, I've seen some examples on uh, TV. One, they were talking about a guy who died, I believe it was Louisiana or Mississippi. He had a just an astronomical uh, BAC, blood alcohol content of like mm-hmm. 3. 3. Um, I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, but because so he was his he, own distillery, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, he shouldn't have been able to drink as much as he had. It was like point. No, actually, I think it was point five. Anyway. Uh, he, long, he, he was committed, you know. He oh, really yes. was committed. The long and short of it, because he tested positive for COVID-19, his death uh, certificate says died of covid you couldn't sell oh, me on that because he had a positive test. Positive yeah. test, yeah. But regardless I mean, this, of what it was that it actually killed him. But I mean, this is this is the same point that's worrisome to me. You know, China is talking about the number of cases that they have, and they're at eighty something thousand when last I checked. Oh, they and killed that many you know, people. <laughs> probably, you know. There it is. <laughs> here, here, here we go. You know, what are people reporting, and how are they reporting it? That is absolutely critical. You know, let's say people, you know, die in a in a house fire, but you know, most of them tested positive for COVID nineteen. So their death certificates are going to say, well, COVID nineteen related yeah. death. In fact, they just burned to death in, mm-hmm. a, in a in a building. You know, same thing within China. You know, we don't know how many people. No, they have died of COVID-19. I don't think the Chinese Communist Party is ever going to tell us how they many people died of it. They will never give a full disclosure on what happened in China. It, it won't happen. We'll no. find out like 50 years later. Well, and it will be in a book. When China and, when China collapses, you know. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. So, so I mean, here, uh, you'd be well, surprised how quickly I, some of those societies can well, fall. Well, I mean, no, this is, this is kind of my point. We're, we're, we're all historians here, and I think this is a valid point, that if you look at the near, well, let's say almost 4,000 years of continuous history for the for China, mm. they always manage to reach a pinnacle of society and then they collapse in on themselves like a flan in a cupboard. You know, that's kind of the they cycle. They do believe in cyclical history over there. Yes, you know, the, yes. The, the, the ancient Chinese proverb, you know, a land divided must unite, a land united must divide. You know? but and look, I think that is very true. Look what they've managed to accomplish this time. The whole... Supply chain for the world <laughs> seems to go to China. That gives them quite a bit of control over things. But that's quickly changing, though. We hope. No, I mean it, it is changing. I'm seeing more and more products that don't have "Made in China" on them anymore. And all, I'm just being honest here. Your big chains like Walmart, yeah, everything in there is made in China, definitely. Yeah. But that microphone you're speaking, in fact, all three microphones we're speaking into, made in Australia. Rode microphones, shout out to them. Um, I love Rode microphones. I really do love them. Um, but the cords that we're using for these microphones, made in America. The um, the interface right here, that's, oh, that is made in China. I apologize. Mm. Designed in England, made in China. But I mean, but 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 so what I'm saying is that people. I think what people saw is is that. And what I think this whole virus has done is awakened us to what can happen. Let's say let's say that the virus was much worse than it was, and it just totally wiped out China, China's ability to make stuff for 
the markets. And your entire it has woken us up to the fact that putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, if that yeah, basket yeah. gets set on fire and your economy goes because of it and Europe's economy goes because of it, mm-hmm. people are starting to wake up now. Diversify the manufacturing to different parts of the world. And so, I mean, it's I think this this has really awoken some people to the to we need to move factories uh, not, to different places and factories to different places and not just that bring some of them back home mm. it would uh and the reason i'm saying that is because look at the uh and it this came out a month and a half ago no a month ago i believe they now know that china in december they knew about this long before it was acknowledged to the world in china in december they were letting all of their embassies know, go buy up all medical supplies. They were telling them from around the world and get it back here. So you were paying an enormous price. They saw what was coming. Well, that's they just created good. It. That's just good, good business. That's just you. 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 You never. You never waste a good thank crisis. You, thank you, Lord Beckett of the East India Trading Company. <laughs> you are most welcome, sir. Lord you are Beckett. most welcome. I mean, no, I mean that's 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 that that's true. I mean this 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 argument of when you see you see a crisis coming, you prepare the best you can for it, and if that entails you know making money off of it, then that is often often the case. I mean, we can moralize it as much oh, yes. as just like FDR as, as we want. The- just like FDR filled the basement of the White House with as much liquor as he could before Prohibition was enacted. I did not know that. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah, that's that's my, my favorite part of Prohibition. JF, yeah. JFK. Um, so that's equivalent to Nancy Pelosi and her IPOs before. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Didn't want to go down that road. <laughs> well, no, I was, going, I was going to say Kennedy, you know, gave his aide an order one time to go out and buy all the Cuban cigars he could find in the Washington, D.C. area. And it filled like a whole small room with Cuban cigars. And Kennedy took one out, lit it up, and said, thank you for getting these. And then he signed the embargo against Cuba. Wow. Well, that's funny. I, mean, I have I have never had any problem, you know, getting Cuban cigars. I mean, <laughs> when I used to live in Brownsville, we'd go, we'd go to Matamoros, the city right across the border. And there was a local tobacconist that sold Cuban cigars there. I could buy as many as I wanted. And it, 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 it mm. wasn't an issue. But in know? the 60s and 70s, you couldn't, really. Well, I... Def- you, I mean, you were bound to be pulled up in front of a committee in Congress if you had a Cuban cigar on you. Yes, because you're probably seen seen as, as a communist, you know. Yeah. The, I, the, I apologize. The great I in- scare. I interrupted you. You were about ready to say something. I- oh, no, I kind of... Kind of just, just just poking at, at, at both of you with kind of this... The, the whole... The whole idea of you know where where we're going with China diversification I think it's it's true you bring up a good point you know about economies being diversified and people realizing that you cannot rely on one single nation state I mean this is the major problem that you 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 pointed out and simply because one nation state has consolidated the majority of the world's supply chain does not mean that, that necessarily gives them a large amount of power if you look at the British Empire, the British Empire had a monopoly in all trade with the North North American colonies. What did the North Americans do? They just turned to smuggling and China, piracy. That, that didn't stop I would stop argue them that because China, because of this, they have, they are powerful. No, I don't. I don't. They. I. I would deny that. No. I would argue on that right there, based off of the fact that they can. Compl- 
that was the biggest one of the biggest complaints that came out of this. They controlled the supply chain. They could decide fates, really. Think about that. Well, what if they play that card? What then? Oh, they did play that card. What if? With, I mean, this is this is the, this is the point. I mean, if they play that card, that is the last card that they will play. Yes. Mm. Things so, things like like we that. We have that, always because that so, that's where that is that we're at that point. As I always told my students, whenever you go to economic warfare, physical warfare follows shortly thereafter. Yeah. I mean, that's as as er, as Erhard said. That would be the last card they they would play because the minute they say shut down all the ships going out of China to, with the purpose of economically affecting the United States. No, that's but that that's, would they would economically affect themselves is why they wouldn't do that. That they, is that's not. But what, but here's the problem that, and this is what I don't think they care. Does that make sense, right? Oh, yeah, because they because, can just throw more workers at it. Or, yeah, know. because they have the people to do it. That's the problem. When you have that many people, when you have that many people living in a country with a government that is as callous as they are, and I'm sorry, but people, there was a guy on Jimmy Dore tried to sing China's praises and say that they were more progressive than all the other countries in the world. I'm like, they round up people and put them in concentration camps. And he's like, oh, that's just... Um, that's just media propaganda. It's like, I've met people that were in these camps. <laughs> I, I have close friends who are Tibetan, who, who I met through, through an international exchange program, and they tell me the same, the same story in how the Chinese Communist Party is systematically destroying Tibetan culture, institutions, and society by simply, well, nearly deporting hundreds of thousands of ethnic Han Chinese people to Tibet. Yeah. And kind of to to close down Buddhist temples, um, Buddhist forms of, of 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 worship. So, if that is not not callous, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, and sorry, China, just just to finish my point no, before I forget it. Go ahead. When you're that, when you have a government that that is that callous of people's lives, and you have that huge of a population, people just become numbers on a sheet, and when they become numbers on a sheet, they become expendable. But my my question is historically, when have the Chinese people ever not been numbers on a sheet? Do you oh, actually emperors. do you yeah, actually right. think the emperor, the, the, oh, the, yes. the the emperors actually saw people as you know people? No, they saw them as workers to build a new temple, build to the build wall. the forbidden city, and yes, to build not just one wall but several you great know, walls. Yeah, great, great, great walls. They um, they actually buried people in the wall as oh, they died. They that, were just thrown down into because you know the wall is is oh yeah is you know it's built with, with stone on either side and it's filled with rubble and then the it's paved on top of that. That's just simply not true. What is it? Throwing people in? No, they never buried people in the wall because it would weaken the structure. They buried them in pits next to the wall, so oh, probably right. throw them off the wall into the pit, but yeah. But eventually somebody must have fallen in and gotten caught in there, and that's probably where that legend came from. Yeah, they're not going to stop progress. Yeah. To... I, don't, I don't think they, they would, but that's more based on, well, urban myth at, at the well, time. Yeah, because it, was so anti, many, it was anti-Chinese propaganda, anti-Chinese propaganda time, yeah, and, against the emperor. And, and even at, at, at the time, you know, so many people died that this myth was created that people were died and buried within, within the wall. I mean, there, yeah. there's a beautiful ancient Chinese legend where a woman 
goes to the wall searching for her husband and her cries moved moved the gods so much that they actually broke open the wall and she could retrieve his mm. his body it's a beautiful chinese legend but i don't think the chinese engineers were that stupid to actually willfully no. bury people inside the wall because the body would decompose and then weaken the the, the actual structure i don't think it was planned that way but i i kind of go with austin on the fact that there's probably as bodies in that wall. Well, how many body in these skyscrapers that were built in the 1920s in yes. New York, when they were pouring that concrete, sometimes a worker slipped, fell in. They the didn't stop pouring the concrete. The Hoover Dam. Oh, the, yeah, the Hoover, the Hoover Dam. Hoover there's, Dam there's, there's, I, I forgot how many bodies are inside that thing. Several that I Because they I couldn't stop the pour. Yes, they couldn't. They couldn't. They could not. And so if somebody fell in, that was it. He sacrificed for the good of the nation. <laughs> in true Soviet fashion. In true Soviet, in true Soviet fashion. fashion. <laughs> yes, I mean, and, and, and coming full circle back to the Chinese question, I think that's kind of the problem. That was the undoing of the majority of the imperial dynasties within China, that they became so callous that they had massive rebellions within their own, their well, own country. And that's something that might happen to China, depending on how callous it becomes with the lives of, of their their, their well, citizens. And that's why they've had to back down a lot of that, right? The opening of China, the, the Chinese government of today is definitely not the you know Chinese government of the 60s, the 50s, the 70s. Yeah. They have relaxed a lot of things, and I think because they understand that you can only push people so far. But that's interesting. You said the um, the callousness of, of what did you say, the callousness of empires? Or the callousness of, 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 of the their, emperors, you know. Leads to their overthrow or something? It, it leads to, to, to the overthrow, and that's what Chinese history proves. If you If yeah. you look at Chinese history, every dynasty was overthrown by a massive rebellion usually a peasant-led rebellion and sometimes an external invasion which often co-opts you know rebellion or causes it as as well but isn't that the downfall of every monarchical dynasty that's what i was about to say well not not every no but a good a good I mean, majority of so them. you got versailles king louis the 16th yes. was so disconnected to his people yes yep that he became callous about them and then we have louis the 18th came back yeah yeah that was always good um, then you had the Tsar in Russia. Same same thing. They locked themselves away in Tsarsky Selo. Mm-hmm. But was the was the Tsar deposed by the peasants, or was he deposed by the educated middle class? Oh, he was he was deposed by the middle class. Yeah, definitely. And then the Bolsheviks overthrew the middle class. Yes. So I mean, it's really that callousness towards people, though. Yeah, the peasants believed the czar was a living saint, so they yes. they weren't going to do that. It was the no. middle class that you know. So, but it, it's but it's that callousness that people only take so much of it, right? Yes, and, and I'm seeing so it now in our society even today, with the callousness of politicians. And I hate bringing her back up again because I don't want her name to really be just thrown in our podcast all this time. But Nancy Pelosi. When she sat there on national television and ate ice cream and showed off her two huge refrigerators behind her, showed off her wealth, and then showed off how stocked up she was on ice cream through this whole shutdown thing. And that to me was just, it, it was the equivalent. Disconnected with the people. We know she didn't say it, but we but it's the equivalent of Marie Antoinette saying, let them, oh, your majesty, the people of Paris don't have bread to eat. Well, let them eat cake. It's that, it's that same removal of reality of of how can you possibly think it's a good idea to show people that how much and, ice cream and, you have? And I mean, I mean, 
to well to 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 defend her i think oh, that go ahead, we don't honey. we don't know what her actual intention was and she hasn't exactly made it clear but regardless of her intention um that that is the narrative that has now grown up around this that oh look at her it's 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 you know um nancy nancy from from revolutionary france you know eating ice cream while people mm-hmm. are 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 starving, and I think that's that's a very dangerous image to kind of portray to people. I mean, no matter how well intentioned it it was, that that has been co opted, and the narrative has been spun oh, yeah. around it. Trump, Trump you, made a video on it like a few hours you, afterwards. You are someone who is entirely disconnected from you know the people of this great nation. Um, not to falter, but I think it's been it's been too easy for people to co opt that that event to kind of spin spin their own their own narrative. So. Before um, we're we're getting close to the end here, but I kind of wanted to talk about something we talked about. We've been talking about here. I, I kind of want to shift gears if that's all right with okay. you, all, and talk about some of the. Uh, if it's all right with you, Rusty, yeah, talk about some of these. Go, go back to the idea of the constitutionality of these shutdowns, because that was a big issue that and my students commented a lot on on the shutdowns because we were talking about the constitution. And one of the things that you and I had been talking about, Rusty, was the sheriffs and the enforcement of things. Because there was a sheriff up in Michigan, I believe. Yes. And it's amazing. We were talking about it. It it fascinated me anyway. They had a 70, I believe he was 77. He's a barber. And I believe this was Michigan. He was told, you can't cut hair. You're, you're out of business till this is over. And he said, no, I'm 77 years old. I've been cutting hair all my life. That's how I make my living. You can't stop me. So they had his license pulled. And he said, no, it's not stopping me. I'm still cutting hair. That's how I make my living. They could not get the sheriff to enforce that, which goes in a big direction towards some of the stuff we've been talking about, actually. Local, local governance. How much mm-hmm. will the people tolerate? And that sheriff, and this is starting to happen around the United States. You look at a lot of the sheriff's departments are saying, no, that makes no sense. We, we, we're not going to enforce that. We're not going to arrest people. Yeah. No, because arrest we, people no. for surviving. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, yeah. Because most most of these local sheriffs are part of the local community, and yes. they understand it much better than mm-hmm. a bureaucrat or a governor or a politician sitting far, far away that comes up with with ideas that are well, sadly, often not in touch with the local reality on on, on the ground. And to argue the point of constitutionality. What in the Constitution gives people the right to shut down the country and telling people they cannot earn money? There is no constitutional precedent for the shutdown what, whatsoever. And the federal government didn't order the shutdown of the... The federal government controls the trade and commerce of the nation. They yep. have the power to do it, but yes. they never did it. You notice that, right? It was the states that did it. It was the states and the individual cities that decided. And it was, again, on a, on a kind of a basis, like I said, the county here made up their minds what they were and were not going to shut down. And they basically left everything open except for gyms, theaters, uh, mostly restaurants. Uh, restaurants, but um, there are some restaurants here in this city that never actually shut down. 
They just had to go orders. Yes. And and they and they were fine with that, right? And so it was never actually the federal government that shut down anything. It was it was the individual cities and the states that basically decided. Yeah. I mean, and this this brings up an interesting point that I think we should talk about in in the next episode. I mean, this this dichotomy between federal, state, and local government, and I think that mm. the the addition of so many vying governmental bodies simply muddies the water for everybody in involved within the South African system. We simply have a single state government. We don't have states government whatsoever. Mm. We have provinces, but all laws and legislations and jurisdiction comes down from the central government. So there is one uniform law of the land, which is applied universally across the entire country. There aren't any different ideas, different policies, different rates and things like that. And I think that's... See, I'm going to use Rusty's slippery slope analogy here because depending... That works as long as depending on who's in charge of that central government, right? Because if the, if, if the federal government did everything that California did, say, this nation would be in Plummeted. bad would be in bad condition right now. Whereas each state was left up to do what they wanted to do on their own, and we survived, I think, because of that. But that's, I mean, so it's... No, I think I think you're right. We should talk more about we should we should maybe talk more in, in probably in the next episode about the constitutionality of some of these things because I think I brought it up to Rusty last week that nobody a story nobody's talking about is that in California they they opened up a lot of the businesses but they wouldn't allow churches to open up. And the president came out and said uh or no um the, the attorney general came out and said, you're violating people's First Amendment rights by not letting them worship freely. And then the president backed up the attorney general and said, you need to open up those churches or I'm going to override your order. And this was just like a small little news article that came out on Apple News, something like that. And they said, and I remember the phrase it said right after it said that President Trump had said that. It said, it is unclear if the president has the authority to override a governor's order. And I'm like, is it now? Hmm. I, I, seem to remind, we, I seem to remember fighting a war over I something, like, something like that. I believe a civil war yes. resolved that discussion. Yeah. And I'm like, but but that but that I'm like, so basically, I don't remember if that was the New York Times or who that was from. Maybe in the Los Angeles Times. It's unclear if the president has the authority to override a governor's order. And I'm kind of like, you got that's. I mean, if you really think about that, you're starting a constitutional debate, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No, I think it's a good conversation to be having. Yeah, I think I think we should be having conversations about constitutional debate rather than fighting a war over constitutional debates. Yes, I mean so. Um, they cost less. Yes, they cost less. That's right, and um, it, it. But that to me was just so profound that that it's unclear if the president can override a governor's authority. And it's like, yeah, last I checked, California doesn't have a state army. In fact, we kind of got rid of. Well, we didn't get rid of them because apparently South Carolina has a state militia that answers to the governor, and I think the now they do wow. have the quote-unquote, National Guard that can be activated. But they can be federalized like that, right? They can be federalized. Yeah. So just a question. Are they wearing the the green uniform or the gray one? Oh. <laughs> wow. Just, would, just a question. Yeah. It would be blue. Blue. So, oh, okay. so <laughs> speaking of, um, of constitutional stuff, I have our quote of the week here, uh, just something I'd like to introduce here. 
Um, and this basically, I you know, I read and uh, watch some stuff over the week, and there are things that strike me. There was a debate from um, uh, in Intelligence Squared or something like that. It's a debate show from the BBC, and they have different things on there. And they were talking about uh, freedom of speech and uh, the the cancel culture on campuses and the shut and deplatforming people. And uh, some very interesting speakers on both sides. Jonathan Haidt, who wrote that book, The Coddling of the American Mind, I've told you about, Rusty. He was on mm-hmm. that panel. But also was the chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs. Mm. And I guess he's the chief rabbi of London. I'm not sure what that title means, but he's a lord. Yeah. Jonathan Sachs. And this is what he said. And just I thought, I thought this was really something because he's talking... Because he's from... I don't know if he's from America or England. He spoke with a... I think he's from New York, but he lives in London now. I'm not sure how that works, but anyways, this was his quote on the on the freedom of speech. If you really have confidence that you are right, then you never seek to silence your opponents. It seems to me that if you really have confidence in what you believe, you do not seek to limit speech because you believe that truth will win in the end. I thought that was really something. If you if you really have confidence that you are right, then you never seek to silence your opponents. I was like, there's. I, I was like, I need to write that down. So that's the quote mm-hmm. of the week. Are there any thoughts on the on that? Powerful words. Several thoughts, but I'll leave them to the next episode. Oh yeah. Well, I, that means I have to remind you of it. I mean, we still got a little bit of time if you if you want to if you want to handle it now. I mean, it's up to y'all. Yeah, uh, it's up to you guys. I mean, I I think we we did a good episode today. Let's um pick up next week then. Pick up with that quote next week. I oh think yeah, that's a good. Point. All right, yeah, it's a it's a good starting point. That's for sure. So, uh, thank you everyone for tuning in to this first episode of a Jew, a Christian, and an atheist walk into a bar. Maybe one day when we get more advanced, we'll be able to actually ho- have this in a bar. You know. We'll see how that goes. Our own but bar. Our own bar, that's right. <laughs> or a Great. pub, you know. Yes. So, again, if you'd like to comment or ask us questions that we can maybe... I'd like to eventually just, if people want to ask us questions, answer the questions in an episode, you know. So if you'd like to ask us questions or give us comments, you can find us on Facebook at a Jew, a Christian, and an atheist walk into a bar, and then on Twitter at JCA walk into a bar. Uh, so, and I, again, want to... Give a shout-out to Big Useless Brain for letting us use their song Know-It-All for our theme song. And I think I'm going to have that play us out. Uh, I'm going to let it play in full so people can hear the song. It's really a good song. It's that old-school kind of punk rock sound that I really like. So, anyways, um, y'all want to say goodbye? Cheers. Out here. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Have a good week, everybody, and we'll see you in a week.
Music.